This is Learning Works, a podcast presented by Hone. It's a series of in-depth conversations with L&D experts, HR leaders, and executives on how they've built game-changing learning and development strategies, unleashed business growth through talent development, and scaled their global L&D teams. Tune in for the wisdom and actionable insights of the best in the industry. I'm Tom Griffiths, CEO of Hone. Welcome to Learning Works. Today's guest is Mike Runglin, a learning executive and author who is a founding member of Facebook's L&D team and helped the company scale from 1,500 to over 26,000 employees. He has over 20 years of experience in the industry and is currently Senior Director of People Development at Lacework. Mike recently published a book called This Is Now Your Company, A Culture Carrier's Manifesto. And in this, part one of our conversation, we touch on some of its topics, such as how you build a learning culture during times of rapid growth, how to actually live your values as a company, and how everyone's ownership of the culture really matters, all drawn from his exceptional seven years of experience at Facebook. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Learning Works. Today, our guest is author, L&D practitioner, and thought leader in the world of company culture, Mike Runglin. Mike was one of the founding members of the L&D team at Facebook, where he spent almost seven years building all things learning. In partnership with CEO Sheryl Sandberg, they created the company's Managing Unconscious Bias Training. He's author of a book, This Is Now Your Company, A Culture Carrier's Manifesto, and he is currently the Senior Director of People Development at Lacework, helping to champion employee learning and development and manager development. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. It's great to have you. I'm sure, we're going to have a great conversation about all things culture and L&D, but I know you're a man of many talents working on a few different things. I'd be curious to know, what are you working on right now and what is most exciting to you? Gosh, it's it's been interesting. Like I, I left Facebook after a really great, yeah, like you said, almost seven years back in 2017 and started my own company, wrote the book, didn't really ever intend to go back into a full-time role. Um, and then at the end of last year, I ran into Jay Parikh, who is the CEO of Lacework and used to be the head of engineering at Facebook and was a client, an internal client for several years. And the stuff that they are working on at Lacework, it's about a thousand person company, just really trying to disrupt the cloud security business and helping people really move away from traditional on-premise type security to cloud-based security. There's tons of challenges that come with it. And there's tons of challenges that come with building an organization from scratch. And the company is about a thousand people. Facebook was probably around 1500 people when I joined back in 2011. They're a pre-IPO company. Facebook was a pre-IPO company. So there's a lot of similarities, but most importantly, working with a leader like Jay, somebody that really understands learning and development, really cares about manager and leader development and getting the culture of the organization right. Uh, one of our three company pillars this year is company building, which is what I'm really focused on. So earlier this week, I spent a couple of days onboarding 70 new people and full-time employees, interns to the company, and really just focusing on getting people culturally alchemated and getting them to take an ownership role 
in not only what we're building as a company, but how we're building it. So there's lots of through lines from my previous experience, most recently full-time at Facebook, and then all of the companies that I worked with as a consultant over the last six plus years. It's all coming together and I'm excited to do it all one more time. That's great. No, it's so powerful when, first of all, you've got leadership and a company that recognizes the importance of culture and investing in L&D and someone such as yourself who can come in and has seen the movie before and can really put things in place that set you up for the future. I'm sure it's a lot of fun and a really hot sector. So congrats to you all for what you're doing there. Um, Thanks. Love to talk about the book. The book is called This Is Now Your Company, A Culture Carrier's Manifesto. And there's hints of ownership, as you alluded to there, amongst the employee base. And I know that starts for you at onboarding. So I'd just love to hear from you. What does it mean to you to be a culture carrier? Yeah, it's funny because when I started at Facebook 12 years ago, the job that I was hired in to do really was to be an internal L&D consultant to the engineering org, which almost immediately evaporated as soon as I got there because the company was about to start what really was a vertical growth ramp that lasted the whole time I was there and has continued going from 1,500 or so people when I started to about 26,000 when I left. (laughs) They got up to 85,000. It's mind-blowing. Anything to grow that much that fast is just insane. Yeah. Yeah. Almost completely like unique in the history of the world. Uh, a few other companies, I suppose, have done that, but just that's unreal kind of growth, like I mean, you say, vertical. It's yeah, amazing. Vertical and so very quickly it became you've done manager development before. We've never really developed our managers here. They gave that to me as a side project the Friday before I started. It was gonna <laughs> side. Oh, we're gonna give you manager development. I'm like that was a team of eighty people at Microsoft. <laughs> where I was coming from. And it was an extra bit of work for me on the side when I started. So I took on onboarding, I took on manager and leader development, really building out that capacity, partnering with great folks externally that I think we really philosophically agreed with culturally. Marcus Buckingham was a huge partner in that so much that when I asked him to write the foreword for my book, like eight years later, he's like, yeah, I owe you one. Um, <laughs> I think from a culture perspective, I had never worked in an organization whose culture I really felt that dialed into before Facebook. So I didn't necessarily consciously appreciate how important it was to really take care of it. And one of the things that I quickly realized was like, wow, it's not just what we're doing that's special. And it was, but how we're doing it is really what drew me here. Because I was perfectly happy in my previous role. I was a consultant to Microsoft. I was living in Chicago. I had a great life, wasn't looking. And then this Facebook opportunity came along and I didn't really fully realize until after I'd started that the reason that I really said yes to the offer was because I just really liked the way they were getting things done. I liked the way they conducted the interviews. I liked the people that I met. The questions were really direct. They were really challenging. Just every, the vibe of the place was amazing. So I I realized pretty quickly that if we're going to continue on this, this crazy, or actually start at that point, this really vertical growth ramp, um, we're going to have to be super intentional about this culture. We're going to lose it pretty quickly because 
my definition of culture that I go into at the very beginning of the book, it's just the sum total of all of our behavior. You can't double the size of any organization or team as we did every 12 months. The company was twice as big as it was the 12 months prior. If you're not going to be super intentional about how you're doing it and what behaviors are looking for and what type of mindset are you hiring people that take that responsibility seriously? Or are you hiring people that think culture's the leadership team's responsibility? I'm just here to get work done. It started like that. And over the first six months, and then for the rest of the time I was there, it became the primary focus of my work as a person, but also as I shaped the work of the learning and development team to really focus on those core cultural skills. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a legendary culture in many ways. And a few of the mantras have seeped out into tech culture more broadly, things like yeah. move fast and break things or done is better than perfect. You know, you can yeah. tell me how real those were internally, but I was curious how you defined the culture at Facebook rather than defining the term culture. What was Facebook's culture and how was that written down so that you could then move forward and bring people into that as they joined the company? Yeah, it really was values driven. And mm -hmm. it's one of the reasons why, you know, over the last six and a half years, I guess it's been almost six years since I left. Most of the companies that I worked with as an independent consultant brought me in because not because they wanted to or that they could replicate Facebook's culture. But what they, what I really advocated for was dig deep and really figure out who you are as an organization and then optimize everything that you possibly can to be the best version of that. And that was born out of when people would come visit Facebook, whether it was business executives or political leaders, heads of state, they almost all wanted some kind of a, give us a tour of the campus. And so I would do that, but then it would turn into wow, this place really does feel different. What is it that you're doing differently? And it really was values driven. Move fast was absolutely, it was move fast and break things in the early days. And then a few interns took the site down a few too many times. <laughs> Maybe leave the break things part <laughs> off. Conceptually, what we didn't mean was break the site. What we did mean was tweak and iterate and break things in this in the sense of make them better when you fix them. Being open and being super transparent, Mark did, and several leaders also did regular Q&As so that anybody in the company could ask any question at an open mic. So I think really more than any company I'd ever worked for, we really were, especially in those earlier days, incredibly values-driven. And I think the reason that those values have permeated beyond the walls of Facebook into other tech companies, including the one that I work at now, Move Fast is one of our values is because it really does become a solid, easily understandable rallying cry for people to just constantly evaluate if you're sitting in a meeting with a group of people and you're trying to decide on a deadline or a project plan. If somebody says, yeah, we should be able to get this done in six months, you can immediately have that kind of yardstick to say, okay, move fast is one of our values is six months moving fast or moving fast enough. Mark used to say that values were tiebreakers. So mm. that if, again, if you're sitting in a meeting and one of our other values was be open. So if we're talking about information that we're going to share internally and people that, you know, maybe come from a different background that they're used to being more conservative is advocating for not sharing enough, then the tiebreaker is if we really do value being open, is sharing this level of detail living up to that value or not? So. 
I really love that kind of view of it. It's also, I've also found how important it is to help, especially senior leaders talk about the very real shadow sides of company values. Being being bold or moving fast, that is an excuse to run like a bull in a china shop and mess up other people's projects or be thoughtless or careless or sloppy. And when you get to the point where you find like people are saying, I was just moving fast, that's mm-hmm. not what we meant. So it's just, they always, our culture always tended to come back around to these five values that we have. Are we actually living up to them? And are we using them to guide our everyday behavior? Or as one of our early engineers, Pedram Kiani used to say, are they just bullshit posters on the wall? And I think whether you work at Facebook or the Navy or Bank of America or Credit Suisse or wherever the heck you work, anybody, regardless what your operating environment is, you can look to those values and those agreements about how you said you were going to show up and use them as a litmus test to determine how successful or not you're being. Yeah, no, totally agree. And like you say, you got to keep them alive through bringing them into meetings or performance reviews, onboarding. And if you can do that, then it can really manifest in ways that you almost wouldn't expect in a positive way to see those values being lived. Yeah. I'd be curious, combining that vertical growth with those values, how did things change as a culture as you scaled so rapidly and what stayed the same? Was the culture able to hold on to those values? And especially as as the team got into the tens of thousands so quickly. Yeah. I'm smiling because as anytime I talk about this experience, because, you know, I've been gone almost six years, but I think back to so many like really critical moments that, that we asked exactly those questions internally. Mm-hmm. Invariably, I remember right after I started, again, I was coming from Microsoft, which was 105,000 employees to Facebook, which was 15, 16, <laughs> 1700. And people would get up and understandably, because it's all relative, they'd get up and say, I've been here since it was 600 people. And now it's 1600. Gosh, we're getting really big. Aren't we worried about our culture? Mm-hmm. From my perspective, it was like big. Are you kidding me right now? There are more people in my building at Microsoft than there are in this entire company. Like big <laughs> and crazy. But again, it's relative. So, mm-hmm. And I think Mark was really good, especially at teasing out, like, what's the question behind the question? Because ultimately, once you get to a certain number of people, which is much smaller than 600, you can't know everybody anyway. So what's the real question? The real question is, are we going to get so big that we're going to lose the ability to keep and hold dear these things that we say that we value? And I remember vividly somebody asking that question once, and he came to play that day and he's, our culture is going to change. It, it changes every time somebody comes and goes. Because again, if your definition is that culture is just the sum total of all behavior, anytime you add or subtract people from that equation, your culture is going to change because different people get things done differently. But what they were really intent on and what I think held us together for all those years was that our values will not change. Our culture will change, our values won't. So being open and moving fast is going to be different as a 20,000 person Mm -hmm. company than as a 1,500 person company, but the value is still the same. We should Mm -hmm. still even as the context around our work changes, if we really do value those things, then we have to continue challenging ourselves to adapt the way that we get work done, even as the company's growing, which is Mm -hmm. in many ways where Mike came in. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so good to name that as well. Like the values haven't changed, but how they 
are operationalized is of course going to change when you 10 or 100x the company yeah. and so being people doing that consciously i think is is a big empowering or clear yeah. way to do that with people conventional wisdom and i've seen this myself i hear it a lot from other people leaders is that certain types of employees are appropriate for certain stages of company and sometimes throughout the growth curve folks from a previous stage or scale might think of themselves as their old guard and things are changing and it's a difficult cultural challenge to bring those along as much as you can while you're bringing in the new skill sets and stage appropriate folks for later parts of the growth curve. So we'd be curious how you tackled that challenge. So I think in a couple of different ways, one is we talked about it. So when, especially when senior leaders, when I'm working with them, usually one-on-one, like in executive coaching, and they'll ask like, how do I keep connected with people in the organization as we get bigger and bigger? How do I make sure that people understand what's going on and the context behind decisions that I'm making? We have to talk to people. And once you get so big that the scale of being able to talk to people meaningfully individually or in small groups is out the window, then you have to have hopefully a good internal comms person that can help you figure out how to scale it. And I think we did that really well. Mark still did a weekly key, still does a weekly Q&A. Mm-hmm. It leaks a lot more now, unfortunately, but <laughs> he's been doing that weekly Q&A for 15 years. So He does it live or do they submit the questions? How does it work? Yeah, he does it live. In the early days when I first started, it was whatever was on the minds of the people that showed up in the room yeah. was what Q&A was. Of course, as the company got bigger, they started using their own Facebook as a platform to get people to vote on questions. And actually, it's really cool. A lot of the stuff that is now in Workplace, which is their kind of corporate solution for companies that want to use a Facebook type platform at work, a lot of those functionalities and features came from stuff that we realized that we needed internally. So he would, every Friday afternoon, like what were the most popular questions we'll make sure to answer like the top three to five and then still leave space for people to that are in the room that want to pick up a microphone and ask a question to do but i think that was one of the things that we said it's really important for him it's really important for people in the company even if it's just symbolically to make sure that channel of communication stays open and then it created the expectation whether it was expressed or not that other leaders from around the company would do similar things with their own organization. So I think maintaining, again, being open and be open as a company value was probably one of the things that had served us the most and I think serves most organizations the most. Because if you're not, you create a vacuum where people will create their own narrative and then believe it and then tell right. themselves that you're the one that told it to them. Yep, yep. Uh, you're a rock in a hard place, but I always have encouraged people to err on the side of sharing more information than less. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great example, again, of living that openness value. And I've certainly found over the years that if you leave a vacuum, people will fill it for you with whatever's in their head, or oftentimes it's a more negative story about a circumstance than the reality. And being out front as a leader and really clarifying things regularly, not being afraid to repeat yourself on the big things like mission, vision, and values is really important. So it's great, great to hear how Mark did that. You touched a little bit there on how as you scale, it can be harder to get a group of people in the room and really connect and at a smaller scale. One of the huge features of the workplace these days, of course, is distributed or hybrid work. I'd just be curious what advice you have for companies 
trying to build a strong culture in that environment. It's funny. I'm now smiling because it's dang. That's one of my biggest challenges right now. At least we're yeah. 90 plus percent of our employees that work at Lacework today were not at Lacework when the pandemic started. So almost the entire company has never worked in a Lacework office. So it's interesting because there's a big conversation about return to work. There is no return to the office. There is no return to the office for us because almost none of our employees were in an office in the first place when mm -hmm. they started. Not that they've never worked in an office before, but they've never worked in an office at Lacework. So it's been interesting. It's one of the things that I've really been doubling down on, pulling on my Facebook experience. Jay obviously was at Facebook for over a decade, I think 12 or 13 years. And I think there's probably about 10%, maybe more of our company is also former Facebook meta employees. So there's a certain kind of predisposition and an easy familiarity with tools like Workplace, for example, to build an online town square. I think it's the interesting thing about the conversation about being in the office versus being out of the office. Being in the office is not a guarantee that you're going to have a good culture because I don't know about you, but I've definitely worked in companies <laughs> Pandemic that it was like, this place sucks. Right. And we were right face to face, all sucking together. Being in an office doesn't guarantee that you're going to have a great culture, and being remote or virtual doesn't mean that you're going to have a bad one. But I do think that it's, like I said earlier, if, as you're growing, you have to be really intentional about culture. And I think as you're remote and distributed, you have to be extra intentional about culture because. Every organization has a culture, whether they work at it or not, because mm -hmm. again, it's just how we get things done. So my challenge to our leadership team and frankly, to everybody in the company, like I said, I just did onboarding this week for almost 70 people, some of whom were remote, was like, look, if this place is great, the next time we do an orientation, thank you. You've helped contribute to it. If this place sucks in two months, when the next group of people comes in, it's partially your fault because that's what culture <laughs> is. It's, it's ownership. And I think jarring people out of their complacency that culture is something that just A, is either an executive or a leadership team's job or something that I as an individual can't really influence. I think I'm just naturally inclined to disabuse people of that notion. Do so in a very personal way. I talked in the book and I talk in orientation every time about I really hated passive aggressiveness in the way that we were passive aggressive and how we got work done at Microsoft. But I went to every meeting before the meeting. I was just as quiet in the meeting that mattered as everybody else was, which then necessitated several meetings after the meeting. I had to reconcile that even though I wasn't necessarily scheduling all of those meetings, I certainly was attending them. And so we have a philosophy uh, from an IP perspective. When you join Lacework, empty your backpack, leave any IP that you worked on or created at a previous company, leave it at the door. I've introduced the culturally, I want you to empty your backpack. Like I want you to bring good ways of getting things done here, but I want you to also be mindful, A, that this isn't the company that you used to work at. So you can't just copy and paste without maybe some nuance. And there are probably things about that organization that weren't great, that even if you didn't like them, like I didn't like passive aggressiveness, if that became the culture that you were used to and you got used to operating in that environment, as I had, you're going to have to leave those things at the door because if you don't, unconsciously, you're going to recreate them here. And just never getting tired of having that conversation and delivering that message. Yeah. So having folks 
almost unlearn what they've learned in the past to be able to adapt to the culture that you're intentionally trying to create. Um, And also it sounds like really emphasizing this idea of ownership upfront so that they, they, as soon as they're part of the company, take responsibility for their part in creating the culture for future joiners. That's great. You mentioned values earlier as a way to really codify what, you know, the essence of the culture is, and that's definitely the most important part. But I'm just curious in a distributed world, do you have any other sayings or rules of thumb or kind of communication guidelines that go beyond the values that really do try to instill like how we get work done here? Yeah, a hundred percent. And every organization does, especially there's one of the things that I've really enjoyed reflecting back to this new leadership team, I've worked with Jay, a couple of other senior folks, because we've all worked together in previous companies. But one of the things that I like reflecting back to them is their own like pithy sound bites. <laughs> the other, it wasn't a value at Facebook, but one of the, one of the posters at Facebook that everybody really found that it resonated with them and is certainly a part of our vernacular, at least work is don't mistake. It was a picture of a rocking horse and it, it was on a red background and the rocking horse was black. And it, it, on the writing on the poster said, don't mistake motion for progress. And we talk about that all the time. Are we just running in place and looking busy or are we actually moving the ball down the field? And there's phrases like that. Don't mistake motion for progress that I think really not just be open or move fast, but it's, it becomes another way of looking at, are we just churning out a bunch of stuff or are we actually moving things forward? Being an L&D is a perfect example of motion versus progress. Mm-hmm. I tell people all the time, I work in a learning and development department, not a training department. A training department to me is a, a group of people that just churns out content and delivers programming, whether it's the most important, whether it's the most culturally relevant, it's just, we just crank out classes and we measure our success by how many people attend them and how many classes we have. Whereas with a learning team, to me, a learning and development team is much more focused on what are the kind of business critical, culturally critical, culturally relevant skills that people need to have. And are we relentlessly focused on providing those things and constantly swatting away, distracting stuff. Somebody come to you say, oh, our people really need to know how to negotiate. Really, does everybody in the company need to know or is it just your team? Because if it's just your team, here's some money to bring in a speaker, buy a book or go to an external conference. It's really imperative that learning teams not get sucked into this notion that if I just keep cranking out content, I'm adding value. It Mm -hmm. really is. because That's motion, but it's not necessarily meaningful progress. And Mm -hmm. especially in this economic environment, I don't have an endless budget. I don't know anybody that has an endless budget. Even in my halcyon days at Facebook, there was still an upper limit to how much money we could spend on different things. So prioritizing on what is the most important and making sure that we're never just looking busy, but we're actually doing the most useful stuff. So things like that, and lots of leaders have different kind of catchphrases that they just drop that kind of become mantras. And that's certainly one of them that I'm happy to see made the jump from my previous org to my current one. 
Yeah, it's cool because obviously it ties back to the value of moving fast, but it gives you, like you say, a mantra that you can use in meetings or individually to check your thinking and makes it even more real and manifested. So it sounds like people brought those themselves as their phrases and then a few of them stuck and really helped. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. We're certainly going to go deep on L&D and the effects that can have on culture in a moment. But just to round out on culture, as you mentioned, times are tight these days with budgets being cut. For many companies, headcount is being reduced and going through reductions in force. Um, So that obviously has an impact on the culture. I would love to know what advice you have for people managing a culture through something like a headcount reduction and coming out the other side healthy. Yeah, I think it's a, it's not a completely different conversation than the one that you have when we're going to double in the next six months. Because I think ultimately, the question is, what is it that we collectively value about how we get things done here? What is it that makes the way that we get things done unique? And whether our team is 50 people or five people or 105 people, Again, if we really value the things that we say that we value, then those shouldn't really be impacted significantly by the size of the team. I think one of the things that I've seen that that does work, that is really helpful, is to continuously maintain that dialogue about how are we getting things done? Is it still working? I think that was one of the things that, interestingly, on both sides of the beginning and the end of COVID, I I guess it's not ever 100% over, but the beginning of COVID where everybody had to go remote and then wherever we are now, wherever the organization is with coming back, I think one of the things that really stuck out to me was that I felt like people were just trying to do exactly the same thing in very different circumstances. Okay, everybody's going to have to go remote. How are we going to make sure that we have exactly the same amount of FaceTime with each other every day? How are we going to make sure that we have exactly the same number of meetings? Instead of saying, this is a completely different way of working, Mm -hmm. take some time and talk about, do we need the same number of meetings? What type of FaceTime are we going to have? Since we're losing the kind of serendipitous conversations that happen at the proverbial water cooler, how are we going to stay connected with each other just in terms of talking smack sometimes? Like sometimes you just need to blow off steam. Are we doing those things? And I think the initial my initial take on it was that a lot of companies a lot of organizations were just like let's just try and do everything exactly the same way as we did when we were all in the office so the same thing i think applies when you're going from a larger team to a smaller one is not just assuming that you're going to be able to or necessarily want to or need to do the same type or amount of work that you were doing before and like I said, you, your culture, you have a culture, whether you're intentional about it or not. So my, my bias is always to say, if I can have influence or control or something, I'm going to go ahead and choose that option. <laughs> then <laughs> I guess we'll just wait and see what happens. And I think a lot of times people feel like it would be disrespectful or, or insensitive to say, okay, we were 12 people a week ago and now we're eight what are we going to do now that these other folks are gone? But they're gone whether you talk about them or not. And the work is going to change whether you talk about that change or not. A lot of times my advice to people is that thing that that has the potential to grow from a baby elephant to a giant one, those are the things that you have to pay attention to and say, we need to talk about that before we don't have the choice but to have to talk about it. 
Yeah, exactly. Bringing it to the fore, talking about it explicitly, agreeing, hearing people out and agreeing how to go forward. And those sound like the right questions to be asking. I'm curious, tactically, who would you want in those conversations? Is that like an executive leadership team level conversation? Do you do focus groups with frontline employees? How do you actually enact those conversations at those crucial times? I think it's both. Every organization that I've worked in has done some type of like an employee engagement survey. We just finished one of the two times a year that we do it um, at Lace Work. And my question and my challenge to people is when you listen to how people talk about the results from those surveys, because I think whether it's intended or not, whether it's explicitly stated or not, I think a lot of times those org health surveys really become report cards on management. Like, how do we feel about management and leadership? How confident are we that management leadership is going to do something with the results of this survey? Those are important questions to ask. But frankly, if I'm not an executive, I work here too. I have a vested interest. And if we say, for example, that, gosh, we have too many meetings. There's just too many meetings in this team. It hampers us. We're not able to get a lot of stuff done. We need to have fewer meetings. Then I go back to the example that I used earlier In a previous life, before I took ownership of that stuff, I would have just been like, the meeting's on my calendar, so I got to go. Now it's more, hey, if we as a team have rated ourselves low because of the number of meetings that we have, then we all need to put our heads together and make some decisions about what is the right number of meetings. And is it, maybe it's not the wrong number of meetings, but maybe it's the wrong attendee list. I think it has to be everybody. The other thing that I tell people is if you're going to wait for managers and leaders exclusively to implement changes based on feedback like that, you're almost begging to not be successful because we outnumber them. Most companies have a lot more individual contributors and rank and file employees than they have leaders. So when you add up, again, if you really believe as I do that culture is the sum total of all behaviors, we are contributing more to the culture in terms of our behavior than they are, because there's just more of us. So all of that stuff always needs to be a partnership. There should be somebody, ideally the most qualified, the most passionate, the most able, who can drive those conversations. But I don't think that they produce meaningful, tangible, long-term results if you don't have involvement from everybody, or certainly representation of all the different groups of people when it comes time to make decisions. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And again, the theme of ownership comes up. Everyone is Everything. part owner of the culture. I have a broken record here. I will not vary <laughs> on <that laughs> no, at all. No, I'm a huge fan. I think it's right. And how great does it look to leadership if someone's taking an initiative themselves to say, hey, there's something that isn't working as well as it could over here in our culture and I'm looking at our values and thinking this is how this is something we could do to get closer to those values. It reflects tremendously well on that person and obviously great for the company as well. Yeah. And more likely to get done. Yeah. Right. At the end of the day, that's it. Again, don't mistake motion for progress. Mm. If we really want something done, then the person that is the most passionate, that is the most committed to it, and is the best at corralling other people to join their cause, that is the person that you want leading it. And I don't care what level on the org chart they are. I think in a truly, the other thing that I think permeates across tech, Facebook certainly didn't invent it, but tech companies really like to see themselves and to ideally be relatively flat organizations. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at at Facebook as an example and other companies as well, on the downside, 
of this growth and really shrinking the company. Where are they shrinking it the most? They're taking out a bunch of people in middle management. Not that mid-level managers can't be useful, but I think in every organization that I've worked at, the middle layer of management tends to be where this type of progress dies because people on the lower end of the totem pole think there's nothing that we can do. People at the more senior ends of the totem pole are like, people in the middle will take care of it. They're just not set up for success. And I think instinctively, when you look at the organizations who are making reductions at that middle layer of management, I think that's why. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. What's your view on how to actually take out middle management and maintain sensible spans of control so that people aren't overwhelmed by a bunch of new direct reports because suddenly there's half of as many middle managers. How do you actually do that? I think I think you have to reverse engineer. Like, why did we put so many middle layers yeah. of management in place in the first place? And I think a lot of it gets back to how you set goals, mm-hmm. how you decide what work needs to get done. One of the things that I know that we looked at or there were two types of people that I automatically screened out when I was interviewing for bringing people into not just Facebook, but into any company. One, gold diggers. Like anybody that's just a mercenary <laughs> for money, bye. Don't want to work mm-hmm. with you. Um, like I, I'm not a volunteer either, but that's the not the first reason that I'm, mm-hmm. that I'm showing work every day. <laughs> the second is empire builders. People that just want to accumulate headcount because they also tend to be the most ruthless when it comes time to to make cuts to because they're like, I've got all these people. I'm going to look really great if I'm the one that kind of mm. throws half of us to lay them off. Of course, never, no VPs will be harmed in this layoff type <laughs> mentality. So I think it's looking at those exact same things on the back end, like how far have we drifted away from the work being acted upon and decisions being made as close to the outcome as possible. I think that was another thing Mm. philosophically that was really important to us at Facebook. Like we don't want a bunch of people involved in decisions that should most easily and best be made as close to the work as possible. So I think looking at how are you setting goals, how are you dividing up the work and really honestly, what is everybody's role and why do you need so many middle men or middle women or middle people in the first place? And I think yeah. a lot of it comes back down to how you set goals. You yeah. Know? Yeah. No, that's great. Great advice. Speaking of anti-patterns in management, I've just got one last question in this segment. I've seen yeah. you talk about this idea of managing by meme. And so I'd love to have you explain that a little bit and how do you avoid that? Well, so to me, managing by meme is just reading through LinkedIn and looking for whatever trendy thing other people <laughs> in other companies were talking about and then saying, yes, let's do that here. I used to say this all the time earlier in my L&D career, you'd get some leader that goes off to a retreat somewhere mm-hmm. and is introduced to the seven habits of highly effective people, for example, not that there's anything wrong with that program, but they would come back and be like, everybody in the company needs to take seven habits. Now it's I saw so-and-so from such-and-such company on LinkedIn posted this thing, and that sounds really good, so we should do it too. Instead of saying, for example, this was one of my really big pet peeves a couple years ago, when companies would, the CEO, especially of smaller companies, but there were some mid-level companies as well, that where the CEO or the CEO would get on LinkedIn, bring their giant soapbox with them and say, 
we are so proud to announce that our employees can work from wherever on the planet they want to work and whatever hours they need. And like, we're here for mm. work-life integration and blah, blah, blah. And of course would get thousands of sweet likes and shares. And the whole time I'm thinking like, shouldn't you actually have to make that policy work before you celebrate mm -hmm. yourself? So yep. shouldn't you have done it for six months? And then instead of saying, we're going to do it, say, Hey, we've, Six months ago, we made the decision to let our employees work from anywhere on the planet. And here's what we've learned. And here are the pros and cons. And it's really worked for us. Reach out if you'd like more info. But that's not what we did. It was, we get very big into announcement culture, which mm -hmm. becomes managing by meme. Shoot, like Airbnb announced that their employees can work from anywhere. And if we want to compete with Airbnb for talent, then we have to do it. And nobody bothered to ask, did it actually work? <laughs> Did it scale? Did our culture, is our culture as good as it was when we weren't doing that? Like, yeah. are we over pivoting towards employees? The same thing happened. I remember vividly a pretty heated internal debate at Facebook that I think I might've even started or certainly fan the flames of it if I didn't start it, where we were announcing, we're going to open a massage parlor on campus <laughs> and it's going to be in the video arcade and the ice cream shop. And I'm like, at some point, when does this end? Because we're going to create a bunch of entitled monsters mm. who don't know how to do anything for themselves and frankly, don't feel like it's their job to. And that's exactly what happened. And so now a bunch of tech companies are like slashing benefits that they really shouldn't have ever created in the first place because they were managing by meme. They were just looking at what other people were doing, putting really very little, if any, critical thinking into what is this going to mean for us? And is it going to work here? Is it going to help? Is it going to make it worse? You, they don't print retractions. Like I haven't seen anybody on LinkedIn. <laughs> say, we probably shouldn't have gotten so far ahead of our skis, but uh, y'all yeah. have to come back now because that didn't work. Yeah, it, I counsel leaders on this all the time and myself as well. Don't get sucked into something that mm. sounds really, leave the trends to TikTok and instead manage by like, Absolutely. If you see something that somebody else is doing and think, wow, that could really make this a better place to work, that could improve not only our employees' quality of life, but our product or our market position, then do that. And then partner with people who are actually going to have to implement it and make it come to life effectively. Otherwise, you're just, you're the executive version of somebody who's posting the same eight bars of bad choreography on TikTok. <laughs> said absolutely no that's a great way to think about it and it's the modern day equivalent like you say of going to a seminar coming back and telling everybody to do something it's i saw it on facebook i saw it on linkedin uh, now suddenly it's got to be right for us versus think yeah, yeah. <laughs> thinking from first principles what's unique about us what are we actually trying to achieve and let's solve the problem in front of us so thanks for yeah. calling that out that's awesome we'll take a quick break there and when we come back we'll talk about l and d Yes. Thanks for listening to Learning Works. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast for our exciting lineup of future episodes. Learning Works is presented by Hone. Hone helps busy L&D leaders easily scale power skills training through tech-powered live cohort learning experiences that drive real ROI and lasting behavior change. If you want even more resources, you can head to our website, honehq.com, that's H-O-N-E-H-Q.com, for upcoming workshops, articles, and to learn more about Hone.